This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Paul Yoon read his story, Valley of the Moon, from the July 3, 2023 issue of the magazine. Yoon is the author of four books of fiction, including the story collection The Mountain and the novel Run Me to Earth, which came out in 2020. A new collection, The Hive and the Honey, will be published later this year. Now here's Paul Yoon. Valley of the Moon. Two years later, he left the settlement. He took the bus heading north and then hitchhiked on the back of a repurposed U.S. Army truck that was filled with others like him who all said the same thing. They were heading home. They all said this knowing that there wasn't much left for them to go home to. Still, it felt good to say this to one another, to say without saying that they had survived, and as the truck made stops, They exchanged cartons of cigarettes, small sacks of grain, shoelaces, pieces of cloth. Then they asked one another where home was and how far from the border they would be living. They asked what refugee settlement others had found themselves in or how many settlements and for how long or if they had been in one at all. They asked one another what they had done before the war and they asked one another their names and how old they were. His name was Tang Su. He was, like so many of them, from a farming family, and he was 31 years old. Crowded together in the back of the bumpy truck, they asked him about his eye patch. He was honest and told them that when he first arrived at the settlement, he was stabbed during a scuffle. Some of them showed him the toes or the fingers they were missing from frostbite during winter. Tang Su did the same. He was missing a toe, and then they made a joke about how maybe what they had lost would turn up now that the war was over. Tongsu, I will remember you, they all said when it was his turn to get off the truck, and he said that he would remember them too, knowing that he wouldn't. When he reached the mountains, he walked. He walked along the road until he reached a part that had been bombed out, and then he walked into the woods and climbed the steep slope. A sack of rice grains was strapped to his back with the moth-eaten wool blanket he had used for sleeping. Hidden among the grains was a large amount of money he had taken from the inside wall of the shanty, where he and a dozen others slept. Money that belonged to a man who had died a year earlier. In Tongsu's chest pocket, tucked inside a handkerchief, were vegetable seeds. He climbed steadily without rest, using the trees that had survived to pull himself up. He climbed for almost an hour, zigzagging up the slope. When he eventually reached the crest, he could see below, almost halfway down the other side, The small farmhouse where he had been born and where his parents had most likely died, he didn't know. It was more than half in ruin, as was most of the land, the soil upturned and dried out. Deep craters were everywhere, pieces of rubber and metal. He spotted the bones of animals, some of them likely belonging to the goats that used to roam here. And he wasn't sure why, but he spent the rest of the day gathering the bones and burying them down in the valley, even before he stepped inside. When he did, it had grown dark, with only the moonlight to guide him through this house he had not seen in a lifetime, where, in the one room where the walls remained intact, he found nothing but a cup on the floor brimming with dirt and rainfall. Tongsu spent a year fixing up the house. 
He found thatch to repair the roof and wood to build a fence for the eventual animals he planned to have. He planted new grass. Once a month, following the river, he walked the four hours into the nearest village and purchased supplies he needed. Or, after the vegetables and the rice began to grow, used food to barter with. Every season, a tinker passed through the valley, riding a wagon pulled by a mule, and Tongsu was able to get from the man cookware, straw baskets, more cups. The tinker recognized him from when he was a boy, but as hard as Tongsu tried to remember the old man, he couldn't. It's good to see someone again, the tinker said, in the Valley of the Moon. Tongsu had forgotten people called it that. He asked if there was anyone else around here. He recalled another farm, farther along the valley, around a bend, but the tinker shook his head. Who wants to live out here? Only you. Not even the soldiers guarding the border, a day's journey north, want to be there. The tinker laughed. Then he slapped the mule and said, at least they buy my stuff, and sang a song loud enough that it kept echoing back, as he grew smaller and smaller in the distance. Unless Tongsu went to the village, he saw no one else. This became his life. He grew his own food and made his own rice wine. He repaired the roof when it leaked and caught rabbits and eventually found someone from whom he could purchase a goat. He began to think less of that time when he'd lived surrounded by voices, yelling and crying and praying, and noises he had never heard before, and bodies sleeping and living and shitting and pissing and working around him. Here, he woke and slept to complete silence, not even a plane, Sometimes the faint sound of an engine, a truck or a tank on the faraway mountain road, but that was rare. Only on occasion the clanking of the tinker's wagon passing somewhere through the valley. He kept track of the growing grass, the return of birds. He grew a long beard, then cut it, and then grew it again. He made a backpack out of wood and rope, and one summer he bought a gramophone with a hand crank. How did it get to the village? and a stack of records and carried it all back with him and listened to music. Sometimes, at the start of evening, he would pack a bottle of rice wine, and letting the music play for as long as it could, he would walk all the way down to the valley floor, where there was an immense cluster of very large pale stones near the river bank that were not from the war but from long before. Every night, the moon rose from here and fell and shattered and then built itself back up again. He remembered that from when he was a child. He had never liked the story, had avoided this area as a child. It had frightened him, the idea of the moon dropping and shattering like a bowl, but he had been too embarrassed to say that out loud. He realized he didn't often think of his parents and his sister anymore, but with the wine in him, sitting on one of the large pale stones, he did. Strangely, or at least he thought so, what came to him most vividly were their hands, or the feel of their hands, and the sweet, sweat smell of his sister's hair. But he could recall neither their faces nor their voices anymore. He thought if he saw them, say, in a dream, or as ghosts, he would recognize them. But he never dreamed of them, and their ghosts had yet to visit him. Which is what he thought was happening one night when he opened his eyes to find someone crouched across from him on another stone. Tongsu had been living on the farm for a few years by then. He had drunk too much wine and fallen asleep. For a moment, he believed he could still hear the gramophone playing, but then the sound vanished. 
Tang Su, trying not to move too quickly, sat up. He was startled, holding his breath, but he was not afraid. The ghost was avoiding the moonlight, and then it spoke. I was told to come find you. Me, Tang Su said. I need to get across. It was a man's voice. In that moment, Tang Su realized the man wasn't a ghost at all. The man lifted a finger, piercing the moonlight like a knife. What happened to your eye, he said. When Tong Su didn't answer, the man went on, I've got the money, please, I need to get across. The man threw a canvas bag at his feet. It hit the empty bottle with a thud. I think you have me mixed up with someone else, Tong Su said, growing more sober as his mind raced to gauge the situation. His tongue felt heavy, not because of the wine, but because he had not talked to anyone in months. When the man stood and jumped over to his rock, Tong Su was so shocked by the sudden enormity of his silhouette, the stranger's proximity, that it took him a moment to feel the hand grabbing his shoulder and then the pistol that was digging into his rib. It felt as if a net had been thrown over him so that everything that seemed to be happening was briefly delayed. Please, the man said, I need to get across. He mentioned a family he had not seen in years, how they had been separated and how he had lost track of them, how he couldn't even remember their faces. Can you imagine what that's like, he shouted. He threw Tong Su off the rock and jumped on him and began to strike him. Tong Su covered his face so that the strong blows hit his wrist. His eye patch fell off. In that moment, he reached out desperately, grabbed a stone and swung landing a direct hit against the side of the man's head. Tong Su was on top of the man now, and that was when the pistol went off. It was quieter than he'd have guessed it would be, like a soft balloon popping. He thought at first he had been shot. He felt the warmth and the wetness all over him, but when he looked down, it wasn't his blood. The man's eyes widened. Tong Su kicked himself away and the two of them faced each other once again, leaning against separate rocks. I just wanted to get across, the man said and hiccuped. Tong Su looked down. He was holding the pistol now. He aimed it at the man's chest, and when the man hiccuped again, Tong Su squeezed the trigger, and then it was quiet again. Tong Su stayed there all night. He waited in case the man was still alive, and he waited to see if anyone else was coming. He listened. He heard the slow, steady current of the river, a night bird, then another. He faced his house to see if he could spot anyone up there. He tried to remember if the shots were loud enough for the soldiers a day away to hear, and then couldn't remember if a sound could travel that far. At the refugee settlement, people had thought they could hear bombs from halfway across the country. There was a time when in a late-night insanity, he was convinced that all sounds could travel far across the country, even his own breathing, especially his own breathing, so that what he had to do was stop his own breathing. He never did that again. He breathed now. He breathed and waited. The sun came up. The valley around him clarified. The rocks grew more brown and the fields green and the trees everywhere showed the start of fall. He was unaware how cold he was until he tried to move. His whole body felt broken. The pistol seemed glued to his palm. His eye patch was by the canvas bag and he reached for it, slipping it back on. 
Then he opened the bag for the first time and saw the money and closed the bag again. In the morning light, he could now see the man. He was older than Tong Su, perhaps in his late thirties, and pencil thin and had a beard. The blood had thickened almost to a paste and covered his entire front, as if someone had emptied a can of paint on him. The man's eyes were open. The shine of them had left the way it always did in the dead, and they did not seem real. The wounds were already attracting flies. Tong Su's first thought was to walk to the village, or to the soldiers. Then he concluded that they would be suspicious of him and would never believe the story. Someone would ask why the man had thought that Tong Su could take him across the border. He thought of all the routes and the avenues that led to tomorrow and another tomorrow and another one. The day grew brighter. A wind arose. Still no one. If the tinker was close, he would hear the clank of his wagon first. Tong Su forced himself up. He dropped the pistol and picked up the bag and headed as fast as possible to his house. He drank a cup of water. He hung the bag on a nail by the front door but changed his mind and took the money out and hid it in a ceramic pot. Then he took out a hoe and a shovel and climbed back down to the valley floor. He almost believed that the body wouldn't be there. He almost wished it weren't. But of course the body was there. Tong Su looked around one more time, listening, and began to dig beside the stones. He worked through the morning, and then he buried the pistol, the man, the empty canvas bag, and even the wine bottle. And then Tong Su walked over to the river, washed his hands and his face, and climbed back up to his house, collapsed on the floor, and slept. He expected that someone would eventually come looking for the man. He thought about this every day, waited for this every day. The more he thought about it, the more the days kept to how they had been before the man appeared. A month went by, and then another. In the evenings, he walked down to where he had buried the man. Drinking wine, Tong Su talked to him. Tong Su said, Is there anyone coming? No, why not? Because they are all on the other side? That's a pity. He said, Now we're friends. Find my parents instead. They will take care of you now. He said, thank you for your money. I will buy animals with it. He bought another goat, as well as chickens and a pig. The pig followed him around all through the house, and he let it sleep with him on the mat on the floor, and sometimes he woke to find his arm wrapped around the contented animal. He stopped talking to the buried man, but talked to the animals instead. He bought a new eye patch from the tinker, who made him one on the spot using cloth from a military uniform. He asked the tinker for any news from the border, but the tinker shrugged. He said instead that a church van was driving around the mountains, not too far from here, wondering if people needed help with their homes, taking care of them, rebuilding them. When Tongsu slipped one day after a day of rain, twisting his ankle badly enough that he knew he couldn't work for a while, he thought of the church van. When he was well enough, Tongsu walked to the village. He had made a walking stick and it helped, but the pain had returned by the time he got to the village. He found the scribe who wrote letters for people and asked if the church group had passed through yet. When the scribe shook his head, Tong Su asked if he could leave a message for them. A week later, Tong Su heard movement on the slope behind his house and walked out to find two kids, a boy and a girl, brushing dirt off their trousers. They said that they were from the church and that they would be happy to work for him if he needed.
The girl was named Unhe, and she was eleven. The boy, Unsik, was ten. Tongsu asked if they were orphans, and the girl said, We wouldn't be part of that stupid church if we weren't. This made him laugh. He liked her. He told them what to do, and he fed them, and in the evening he rolled out the mothy and wool blanket for them to sleep on. He built a fire and told them to sleep beside it for warmth. The next morning he thought that he would wake to find them gone, but they were still there, and they were there that night, and still there the following morning. Soon the kids were living on the farm, and it was only a matter of time before he unofficially adopted them, or asked if that would be all right by them, and they nodded. He said that they didn't have to call him their father, that he wasn't expecting them to. They didn't, but he noticed as the years went on that they called each other brother and sister. Now he could send them into the village together and not do that walk on his own. Some days they cooked and they assigned birthdays for each other and also celebrated his, though he never told them his age, told them to guess it was more fun that way, and they guessed that he was much older than he really was, and they gave him gifts they had made or ones they had caught from the church people, whom they spoke to on occasion when they crossed paths in the village. The mountain roads were rebuilt. It was easier to access the house and the valley, but no one seemed interested in visiting. It was a forgotten place. That was what Tongsu thought. And he wondered if that bothered the children. He didn't know. They didn't talk about it. They walked with him at the start of evening to the stones on the valley floor, and it was the boy who one day noticed a small knife etching on one of the surfaces. Tongsu had done this absentmindedly during that year when he would walk down in the evenings, sit down and talk. Tongsu didn't know what to say, and then the not knowing grew into a frustration that bloomed inside him, not unlike those nights at the settlement when a man beside him would not stop talking or weeping or panting. And he grabbed Unsuk's shirt collar and told him that had nothing to do with him. What did he know about things like that? In the moonlight, the boy stiffened and looked first at the river and then at Unhe, who had brought her knees up to her chest. It was then, seeing the girl like that, that Tongsu released his grip, cleared his throat, and ruffled the boy's hair. Then he tapped Unhe lightly on her knee and leaned forward and told them both that his wife was buried here. He said that in the chaos of the war, you buried people where you could. He said that he was lucky she could be buried here at home. That was the first time he had lied to them, and the last time he ever would. Would you like to be buried here, Unsik said, looking back at him now, when you are gone. Unhe glared at her brother and said that he was being disrespectful. But Tongsu waved a hand in the air and took some time thinking about it. Yes, he said. One day, not long after that conversation, while feeding the animals, Tongsu felt a shadow pass over him. He turned, but there was no one. He was about to return to the animals when he spotted, down in the valley, Unsik, who was leading a man toward the house. Tongsu watched as they followed the river and then navigated the stones and began to climb the slope. He told Unhe, who was beside him, to go inside and not come out until the man was gone. He said this in a tone the girl had never heard before, very different from when he had yelled at her brother, this time both urgent and controlled, and so she did as she was told, sliding the door closed and pulling down the shutters. 
Tongsu took out his knife, checked the blade, and slipped it behind him under his waistband. Even from a distance, Tongsu knew that the man was not from here. He was wearing country clothes that were clearly new, clothes that seemed meant for taking long treks but had never been worn, the shirt too crisp, the wool vest too bright, the boots clean of any scuff marks. And then closer, he saw the hair that had clearly been a government haircut and was growing out. But which government, the north or the south? When the stranger made it to the house, he wiped his brow with his handkerchief, looked all around him and said, Time never reached here. If I wanted to hide, it would be here. What beautiful country. Tongsu told him he wasn't hiding, and the man wiped his brow again and grinned. Unsik noticed the door and windows closed, and when Tongsu told him to go inside, the boy bowed. The man thanked Unsik for leading him all the way here from the village and offered him some coins. Unsik took them and hurried inside. Then the stranger bowed to Tongsu and said to please forgive him, but he was looking for an uncle who had vanished some years ago and was last seen in these mountains. There are a lot of mountains, Tongsu said. Yes, the stranger said quite. The stranger walked over to the animals and inspected them. He never came home, he said. This would have been three years after the war. He would have come this way. Tongsu asked the stranger where he was from, but the man didn't respond. Instead, he went on. He would have climbed up and passed through this ridge to enter the valley, because the roads were a mess back then, you remember, craters from bombs and from shelling everywhere. I'm sure you know this, but they used to bury animals and the unclaimed dead in them, and then if the holes still weren't full enough, they would use whatever else they could. Sacks of stones, steel drums, wood, so that vehicles could cross. Transport vehicles all over the country, carrying supplies, tires, concrete animals. A pig passing over the bones of another one. Isn't that something? That was reconstruction back then. But you know that too. Which camp did you spend the war in? Were you in Busan, one of the shantytown settlements? Did you ever need to find someone you had lost? You went to the 40 steps there, didn't you? That was where you went to find someone in Busan. Everyone knew that. On those steps near the port, you could listen to an accordion player playing a song or buy popcorn from a street vendor and find your person. You're lucky, you know. You were displaced but safe. Maybe not from one another and your petty greed and insignificant dramas, but from the greater madness. I would willingly be displaced for my entire life just to be safe from that. Not my uncle. He survived the war only for it to take him later when it was all over. What happened to your eye? Tongsu, who had reached behind him for his knife as he listened to the stranger, wondering if he could move faster than this man, and where he would position himself to make sure the stranger didn't enter the house. Asked what he meant by the war taking his uncle after it was over. The stranger paused. He was pretending to not notice the hand that Tongsu had behind his back. Then he bowed and asked for Tongsu's forgiveness. He said he was tired from the long walk and from the years of looking for his uncle. He asked if Tongsu would be hospitable enough to offer him some water. 
Tongsu took his own cup and walked over to the pump. The man gulped the water down and wiped his mouth with his handkerchief. Then he bowed a third time and offered the cup back with both hands. I was sorry to hear about your wife, the man said. Tongsu wasn't sure if his face revealed anything, but the man said that the boy had mentioned the grave down there. The moon rises, the man said, and falls and shatters, and then it builds itself back up again. He bowed a fourth time, not as deeply, and then without saying anything else, not even a goodbye, he walked around the house and over the ridge into the forest that would lead him down the other side of the mountain. Although Tongsu never saw the man again, and no one else came asking about a missing person, the strangeness of the encounter and the unsettledness of it hummed inside his chest for the remaining years of his life. It was at first like a fly that was trapped in his heart, something he learned to ignore, only for it to turn later on as he grew older into a claw. There were times when he avoided walking down to the valley floor altogether or refused to leave the house. He sat looking out or paced the grounds, and he let the kids who were no longer kids do everything around the house. He ignored their glances and ate what they made him and went out again to sit and stare across to the other side of the valley. There were also periods in his life when the feeling went away, when it seemed that he could reclaim the days, only for the face of the stranger or the stranger's voice to return in a dream where Tongsu kept tripping over the bones of animals and could never climb out of the crater he found himself in, a silhouette high above him peering down. Perhaps this was why Tongsu hit Unsik one day when a pig died, or perhaps it was the grief of the pig dying that caused him to behave illogically and recklessly. He found the pig which had apparently died peacefully in its sleep on the grass, and he went straight for Unsik. Tongsu struck him and pushed him against the side of the house, closed his fist, and punched him. Unsik, staggering, opened his eyes, his face filling with shock and confusion. He reached out with both hands as though trying to hold up a wall that was about to topple over, and that was when Tongsu punched him again and then kept punching him until Unsik's nose split open. Tongsu did all this silently, forgetting whom he was hitting, his vision gone black, unaware of Unhe screaming behind him and clawing at his back so hard that she ripped his shirt, her nails digging into him and scraping rivers in his skin. Unhe was by then seventeen, a young woman, and that night she caught Tongsu looking at her for a beat longer than he normally did, caught him in the wake of whatever storm had erupted inside him that day. She had buried the pig by herself in the field and was on the other side of the room, caring for her brother, using a warm, damp cloth to wipe his face, which was no longer recognizable, a lock of her hair falling over her own face. And as she tucked her hair behind her ear, it was then that she felt Tongsu's eye on her, the foreign heat of him from across the room like a drowsy ancient bear that had lived many lives and was now wary and impatient in the back of a cave, watching. The siblings left not long after that. Not together, 
Unsick, who had lost partial vision in one of his eyes, sneaked away early one morning before it grew light. Instead of a note, he left Unhe a piece of paper he had folded into an origami boat. The tinker had taught him this, a skill that Unsick, when he first saw it, thought was magic, and the socks she was always stealing from him. They would never see each other again. She would never know of his many lives, and he would never know that his sister had left the same day he did, left the one-eyed farmer and the house that had been their home, left the valley, walking first to the village, looking frantically for her brother, and then catching a ride with the scribe, who was now retired and was going to visit a war memorial on the anniversary of the armistice. From there, she found another ride, and then another, at some point the desire to find Unsik folding together with a new desire to keep moving. A week later, she ended up in the city of Degu. The church that had taken her to the valley was based in that city, and it connected her with a pharmacy where she worked the register three days a week. She found a room to rent at a woman's boarding house near the river. She developed insomnia. Every night she climbed out onto the rooftop to smoke cigarettes and listen to a neighbor's radio that was always too loud, tuned to an American GI station that played rock and roll. Looking at the river and the city, she understood slowly and then quickly that the country had been changing dramatically while she and Unsik lived in that forgotten valley and was changing still. One night, a woman from the boarding house asked her if she liked to dance. Unhe didn't know. She had never danced, not at the farmhouse, not even with those records or before those years. But she went with the woman anyway, avoiding the police as they held hands and hurried toward the outskirts of the city to the basement of an abandoned factory where Unhe froze under a brick arch, letting go of the woman's hand, confronted by a mountain of sound. Was that jazz and a forest of shadows? everyone inside ignoring the stink of sewage and flailing their arms, twisting their hips, jumping and dancing. It was a space Unha would keep coming back to, staying right up until curfew, wanting to be swallowed by the boom of music in a crowd. On weekends, she helped the church host community dinners and she drove the homeless around in its van to receive medicine and vaccinations. She met old men and old women who had been born in the North but never returned after the war. She met people heading off to Germany to be nurses and miners for more money than they had ever made in all their lives. And she met American GIs at the base who were sometimes kind and other times cruel, obnoxious, and dumb. She met people who supported the new government and others who wanted to wage another war against it. She watched protests fled protests, and then later watched a policeman line up a group of boys against a wall, take out a pair of scissors from his belt, and trim their hair, which was an inch too long. She fed as many of the stray dogs as she could, and she had conversations with university students who called themselves activists and intellectuals and musicians and painters, and one day with a hotel receptionist who told her that she should come work with her that she would meet people from all over the country and sometimes from other countries. By then, more than a decade had passed since Unhe left the valley. 
She had received no news of the one-eyed farmer other than from someone at the church who mentioned seeing him once in the village. To Una's surprise, the old man had been asking about telephones because lines were being installed in that area. Una had turned 28 in the lobby of the hotel, working the night shift. Because of the curfew, the birthday was uneventful, but she loved being in the lobby, the pretty lights, the space that never smelled of sewage. She learned to appreciate the quiet again, the nights. There was always a notepad to doodle on, a Japanese comic book a guest had left behind, Unhe unable to read it but savoring the illustrations. And almost every day, Unhe was aware that she was living a life she could have neither conceived of nor made sense of a decade ago. Where was that girl now? Late one night at the hotel, not knowing exactly why, she picked up the phone and dialed a number she had been given by the church, the number supposedly of the farmhouse in the valley. When Tong Su answered, she paused, listening to him breathing, his voice saying, hello, hello, and she hung up. A few days later, she called back, hung up, and then she called again and again, not too often, perhaps once a month. Tong Su always picked up. He said, hello, hello, and eventually she answered his hello, and they began to talk. Which was how she got back in touch with the one-eyed farmer who had taken care of her and her brother. She and Tongsu talked two or three times a year, mostly near a holiday or the farmer's birthday. They never talked about the past or what happened or any memory they had of each other and of those years. They talked about the small things in the day. He had got some new chickens. The scribe had died. So had the tinker. She had finished a comic book she thought he might like. Why? Because it features a pig. Silence, his breathing. There was a rumor that South Korea was planning to make a bid for one of the future Olympics, she said. She had heard that, but couldn't believe it. To think of the world coming here one day. The whole world. It almost made her laugh. She tapped her pen on the notepad. And then, when he didn't respond, she told him something she wasn't supposed to tell anyone, a secret. But whom would he tell? There were diplomats coming to stay at her hotel, she said, important people whom she would have to greet. She was nervous about that. She didn't even know what a diplomat was. Pretend they're goats, he said. Goats? They used to calm you, to see the goats on the mountain, when you were scared or crying from a nightmare or missing your mother. Una had no memory of this, just as she would have no lasting memory of greeting the diplomats when they arrived or greeting some others the following year. She finished her shift and then she met some people by a house near the river. A jazz band was there, a piano and a trumpet that sang like slow falling leaves. She lost track of time. It grew late, almost past curfew. The buses had stopped coming. She thought she could walk it, and she did, the music trailing her as she followed the river, sensing something behind her, but trying to ignore it. When she turned, she saw two silhouettes in the near distance walking her way. There was no one else on the river road. The shops were closed. She heard a distant siren. She turned around again, and they were there, still following. She thought of running, intended to, but she froze. 
She would think of this sometimes later, unable to remember how long she was on the road that night. Stopped in the middle of it, her body unable to move as though waiting for the inevitable. Wondering why it was a thing she was waiting for, wanting to scream but unable to, as the two men hurried up behind her, and then passed, a pocket of air, not even looking her way but deep in their own private conversation and holding hands briefly, she saw, before they parted, one continuing down the road, the other crossing a bridge, running now the way her brother used to run, with long strides, stopping to turn once, believing that she, Unhe, from that distance was his lover, a silhouette that he waved toward with reckless happiness as the clock struck midnight. It wasn't long after this that Unhe took a weekend off and caught a bus heading north. As she left the city, evidence of fall began to appear. The colors of the trees grew deeper and bolder, the woman beside her had an arm in a sling. When they were far enough out of the city, the woman slipped off the sling and began knitting. She knitted the whole way up, though what she was making, Une couldn't tell. Whenever the bus hit a bump, their elbows touched, but they never spoke. Une got off first. From the start of the mountain road, she walked. It was fully paved now. She kept to the side of it as a car or a truck raced by. A light rain began to fall, more like a mist. It was not unpleasant, and went away before she got soaked. She paused when she thought she heard a song playing, a humming, only to realize that it was a bird. There were no animals when Una had arrived at the farmhouse, not a single one. When no one answered, she walked in and saw him sitting on the floor beside his tea table, his legs crossed, leaning against the wall, with his mouth open and his hand clutching his chest. She didn't know how long he had been dead. She had not talked to him in months, but it appeared that he had died recently. There was a faint smell to him, and a fly buzzed away when she approached, but otherwise it was as though he had fallen asleep. Save for the hand on his chest, he had been clawing his skin, a heart attack. He looked peaceful sitting there. His hair, which had turned entirely white, was combed neatly, the comb itself in his chest pocket in front of his handkerchief. The only thing odd to her was that he was not wearing his eye patch, and she wondered how long ago he had stopped wearing it. It occurred to Unhe that she had never seen him without it, not once. It occurred to her also that she didn't know how old he was exactly. He could not have been older than seventy. She knelt and leaned forward to look at him fully. She kept waiting to feel afraid, but the fear never came. She tried to move his hand away from his chest, but his body had stiffened too much. She bumped against the tea table. The cup there was full of tea and it spilled a little. She dipped her finger into the cup, cold, and almost put her finger into her mouth, but paused. She turned around and listened. Nothing. She looked at him again, the hand on his chest and the dark coin of skin where his eye had once been. She rubbed the tea between her fingers, sniffed, and wiped her hands. 
She searched the house, but it was as it always was, perhaps not as clean or as tidy. They had done that, she and her brother, but the same otherwise. The gramophone was there, his backpack and his walking stick, his mat rolled up as though there would be another evening and morning. The only thing missing was his eye patch, and she walked around again trying to find it. And then when she couldn't, she cleaned up a bit, taking away the teacup and pouring it out, and sat down again in front of him for a while. From her pocket, Onea took out the origami boat that her brother had left for her all those years ago. For the first time, she unfolded it, knowing there wasn't anything written on it, but hoping anyway the way she used to, wanting every night on that rooftop overlooking the river when she couldn't sleep, listening to someone's rock and roll, to take the origami boat apart, but being unable to. Now she flattened the blank paper on the tea table and left it there, thinking of what Tongsu had said to them both a long time ago. She unplugged the telephone. She closed the windows and looked back at Tongsu one more time and went out to find a shovel and a hoe. The sun was setting by the time Unhe reached the bottom of the valley. She headed over to the cluster of stones, not far from the river, and when she found the one with the knife markings on it, she stepped a few paces to the side and began to dig. She dug and used her boot to sink the shovel in, and when she came upon some rocks, she used the hoe. It grew dark. Even in the cold, she was sweating. The moon came up, and when the shovel hit something that was not dirt or rock, she didn't hear or feel it at first. She had lifted the shovel, ready to strike again, when the moonlight shifted and she stopped. She got on her knees. She brushed the dirt away and lifted up a bulky, heavy sack and unwound the twine. Inside was a large collection of animal bones. She picked up what was probably a rib or a leg, and also the skull of something small, perhaps a rabbit. Also the skull of a goat. Hooves. She had no idea how old the bones were or whether it was even Tongsu who had buried them, or whether this was a history much older than his or her own. She sat down on one of the stones and thought of the multitude of animals that had lived and passed through here. The ones that were cared for, eaten, released, left behind, caught in gunfire and shelling, were terrified into stillness, were born, lived, played with each other, breathed. Her body hurt. Unhe wondered if she should go on digging, whether it was silly and irresponsible what she was doing. She wished Unsick were here. She wondered where he was, what he looked like these days, whether he was alone or with someone right now, whether she would wake one day and sense that he was gone, or whether he had already gone. She thought about how a decision could reveal all the different layers of life, which felt to her as unreachable as the inside of a flower. In the valley, all was silent and clear, and then from far away came a sound of clanking metal. Or that was what Unhe thought it sounded like as she returned the bones to the ground. She walked a little farther to another spot and started over again, digging. The moon rises and falls.
what was the rest of it. In a moment, Unhe would remember. That was Paul Yoon reading his story, Valley of the Moon. This is his first story in the magazine. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Atessa Moshbeck reads Two Ruminations on a Homeless Brother by David Means. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>